Fortnite in Film is a podcast where every week you get the chance to listen in on a group of film lovers chatting about the great, or not so great, movies that we've been watching over the past fortnight. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of A Fortnight in Film. I'm your host Jason. And I'm your co-host George. Thanks for tuning in. A little while ago, we did a project where we we watched all three of James Dean's films. We've got another sort of project uh, this episode, which which sort of came about by accident. We're looking at a few of the films of Paul Thomas Anderson. He's done more than we are talking about here. Originally, it was only one pick of Paul Thomas Anderson's that we had, which was Christian's yeah, film. It was mine, wasn't it? No, it was oh, Christian's was originally. Oh, he yeah, he picked the master. Well, in yeah. in fairness, you you switch your pick. So wait, so I I picked something first, a Spanish a Spanish film, then I changed it to Licorice Pizza, and then Christian gave us a choice of like three films. The master was among them. So I thought, oh, I haven't seen that as well from PTA. Yeah, and, and then I switched yeah. my pick from a, a 50s film to a uh, 40k. Well, I'll pick Paul Thomas Anderson film as well then. So I picked There'll Be Blood. Um, yeah, I think we've got some mixed some mixed feelings this episode, you know. We, we, <laughs> we have, we have. Heads up, the films we're about to discuss may contain spoilers. For a list of the movies we cover this week, check out the description. So let's uh, jump into it with my pick, which is There'll Be Blood. Uh, from 2007, stars Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano, Dano, however you say that. Um, they're sort of the two main characters. Um, the plot is it's a it's a it's an epic film in in the sense of that you know it's it's genre, um, and it's a long film, so I won't go into super specific detail. Daniel Day-Lewis uh, plays someone called Daniel Plainview, who is uh, a prospector, um, and he's looking for uh, silver. And in the midst of this, he he ends up breaking his leg, but he he gets a silver and gold claim out of it. Um, so that's in eighteen ninety eight, and then a few years after that, um, he discovers oil and he establishes uh, a company. At one of his oil wells, one of the workers dies. Um, so Daniel sort of takes the man's son as his own, and they travel around to different places. Uh, you know, getting people to to lease from their land um, to drill for oil. Uh, so the story jumps forward to 1911, uh, and uh, Daniel gets approached by someone called Paul Sunday, who says, "Oh, under my family's farm, there's all this oil. You should come and drill there." He gets the rights to the property, um, and he gets basically the rights to everything in that town called Little Boston. Uh, apart from the property of one man called William Bandy, who asked to see Daniel and he sort of brushed him off. Um, and so he he's sort of a holdout. He never sells to him. So there's this sort of rivalry in a sense, or, you know, this sort of animosity that arises between uh, Daniel and Paul uh, for different reasons. You know, Paul, uh, sorry, well, no, l- let me backtrack. So Paul, we only see him that one time. When Daniel gets to the ranch where this oil is underneath. There's someone there who looks exactly like Paul, but it is not Paul. It is someone called Eli, who is his twin brother. Um, 
So so Eli and and Daniel, you know, have this animosity between them uh, because you know Daniel just wants to drill, um, and uh, Eli, you know, wants to build this church there. And, you know, they, they do different things to each other. You know, Eli wanted to bless the oil well and, and Daniel didn't let him. Eli, you know, embarrasses Daniel at different points. So someone turns up who says he's Daniel's half-brother and they sort of, you know, go into business together. Uh, but the son, H.W., um, gets jealous and sort of sets the house on fire. Before that, you know, one of the oil wells had, like, blown up. It had left the son, H.W., deaf. Combined with, you know, him setting the house on fire and being deaf, um, Daniel sends him off uh, to a school for the deaf and doesn't see him again. Daniel finds out that this person who claims that he's his half-brother is not actually his half-brother. He's just a random person who happened to meet his brother at some point and sort of, you know, stole his documents and took on his identity. Um, so he, he kills the guy. William Bandy um, finds out about it and says... You know, I know what you've done. Um, I will give you my land uh, if you come to this church and be baptized where Eli is, you know, the preacher or whatever. Um, so Eli, you know, sort of embarrasses him and says to everyone in the town, oh, you know, you abandoned your son and etc. Um, and HW actually comes back to to Daniel um, and they leave um, Little Boston. HW ends up marrying um actually one of Eli's and Paul I guess um one of her younger sisters and he goes to his father and says I'm leaving uh you know I'm going to start my own business and Daniel doesn't like that he tells him the truth of you know you're not my son and he's basically like an alcoholic at this point living in this huge mansion by himself um who reminds me of some, you know, some of the other films we've talked about where these, <laughs> you know, these broken people live in these huge mansions. And Eli comes to visit him uh, and says, I will give you the property rights to the the Bandy's land, you know, because he's recently died. And Daniel says, okay, sure. Uh, just say that you are a false prophet. Um and say that, you know, you have no credibility and you're just, you know, scamming people out of money. You don't believe, you know, what you're preaching. So he does. And then there's a huge twist. And Daniel says, actually, I've already got the rights. Is it that? Or I thought he said he's basically sucked all the oil out of the plot. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's something like, yeah, it's now worthless because he's already... He, he owns the surrounding um, plots. So he's like sucked all the oil out from it already yeah and daniel proceeds to kill eli uh, with a bowling pin which is something i've not seen before it's a new one and uh, the film ends look i thought it was a great film i gave it four stars um i was very highly contemplating giving it four and a half um but i, I stuck with four but it's a very strong four stars i i and you don't rate it as highly as, as Letterboxd in general because Letterboxd has it at a 4.4 rating and it's rated as uh, the 30th highest rated film of all time. Um, so people on Letterboxd think very highly of it. Um, film people in general think very highly of it. Um, it's sitting at 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, um, 93 out of 100 on Metacritic. Multiple top 10 lists, top, you know, top... 
Yeah, multiple top ten. I mean, you know, there's something here. You know, 177 film critics in in a 2016 said it was the third best film of the 21st century. Um, so it's you know, people. I could go on and on. People think of it very highly. Um, what did you think? So I originally had it at a 3.5, which for Letterbox and in general is probably quite low. Um, but since then, I've sort of um, thought about it more and sort of reevaluated, um, and it's I've put it up to a four, which I think is a more accurate sort of reflection of what it is. Like th- a three and a half, I was thinking, it, yeah, that's it's it's too low. Um, but I think it's a film that I'm more sort of um, I more appreciate the craft, like the cinematography, the acting, um, the sort of set design, the historical parts of it, rather than actually sort of fully enjoy watching it if that if that makes sense um but i didn't have as much of a of i guess um sort of emotional connection to it as other people on letterboxd have like there were few there weren't many scenes that i found to be really really hard hitting um i guess the the final scene when his son says he's going to go off um to sort of prospect by himself and that whole scene i found that very impactful and the church scene um when eli is um sort of baptizing him but yeah i I don't know i i wasn't i don't know i I wasn't sort of as gripped by it as i wanted to be i the first hour is really strong um i was like i was gripped the first hour but then as it went on my focus sort of started to wane a little bit like i I was checking my phone like one or two times but yeah yeah I, i i appreciate it more for like the craft so like the cinematography is is amazing like it's so it's so crisp if if that sort of describes it well um like the colors uh the, the sort of sound design um the acting is of course incredible um daniel day lewis is insane so yeah i think yeah, i appreciate it more than i enjoy it if that makes sense i, I guess you know once we get on to talking about the master that's sort of how i feel about that in terms of i could appreciate that for its technical aspects, but the plot sort of left me lacking, but obviously we'll, we'll get to that. So look, yeah, for me, I mean, I would echo a lot of what you said. I think, you know, the cinematography, you know, the sets, the locations, you know, the filming was just all fantastic. I mean, the use of colours, you know, especially when that the oil derrick was burning and it was just, you know, this fire and the blood red sky and it was, you know... And the sound, the sound was... Yeah. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It was almost like a clicking, like a really intense, like, clicking yes. sound. I don't know how to describe it, but it was really intense. Yeah. Um, and on that point, you know, the score was just fantastic. You know, Johnny Greenwood, you know, props to him, who also scored The Master as well, um, as well as, you know, many other films. Like, he's, like, it, like it's, it's not good enough being in, like, Radiohead, one, like, the best bands ever. He's like, oh, I'm just going to become this, like, amazing film composer as well. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, as you do. So that was just, you know, fantastic. Whether it was something, like you said, during that oil derrick scene, it was, like, the drums or whatever they were. Yeah. It was, it was like, super yeah. intense. Um, or even it was just like the underlying score of like you know the piano and the strings and stuff. Um, so that was all just fantastic. But acting, as you said, um, you know I've only seen Daniel Day Lewis in a few films, but the stuff I've seen him in, he's delivered. Um, I mean, he's you know he's he's well, I think a lot of people think he's the goat. You know, the greatest yeah. ever. I mean, I don't um, think he's that good, but I think he's certainly good. <laughs> well, oh uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's only done sort of a handful. Uh, of, I know, yeah, he's very selective. He's, handful, yeah. he's very selective. Um, and I've seen him. What else I've seen him in? Phantom Thread. I've seen parts of that. 
Mm. Um, Gangs in New York, he was very good in. Yeah, but no, he's yeah, he's he's incredible. Although I have to say, the scene, the um baptism scene, when you know Paul Dano is sort of saying at him, and then he and then he shouts, "I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy." That I had a little chuckle during that scene because on TikTok, um, there's a trend where these these like guys were making fun of like fil- of like film bros and the types of films that film bros enjoy and specifically the acting in these sorts of films and they they were all sort of imitating that that scene um so all i could think of was just these guys on tiktok just imitating daniel day lewis <laughs> um, See, this but, is why you don't watch tiktok <laughs> yeah I, yeah it's, it's, it's sort of ruined the scene for me a little bit but it's great acting so yeah you know yeah what you know um but yeah he's he's great yeah. You know, that yeah. twist at the end, I love. I'm a sucker for twists, especially like when they come right at the end. I mean, it said in, in, in the grand scheme of it, it wasn't all that big in the sense that there were other stuff that happened in the film apart from him trying to get the rights to this land. But just, you know, when he just reveals at the end, oh, I don't actually need it. It's just like, holy shit. Well, yeah, he, he sort of explained that he, he used a milkshake analogy. So if he's if he gets a straw and drinks from another milkshake, he can, you know, you're sort of draining the other piece of land, basically. Yeah, but very classic line. I drink your milkshake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he makes Eli do this whole speech just to sort of embarrass and humiliate him. Then just does a mic drop and says, "Well, you know, you didn't actually need to do that." Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you know, I, I loved because he he was sort of like this anti-hero yeah, character. Mean, you know, but but like I, yeah. I was rooting for him because I'm like I like maybe it's just Paul Dano. He has such a fucking punchable face. Yeah, I like know. holy shit. I know. Like, but also just his character was just like insufferable. So the whole time, even though I know that Daniel is not a good guy, some of the time. Well, I would say I'm most, still I mean, like most of the time. I'd say <laughs> yeah. Daniel. There's but... a video on YouTube which is like the definite. <laughs> it's titled like "What Is Evil?" Daniel Plainview. So, you know, it's... Um... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if I got evil. I mean, in saying that, I, I'm like an unabashed capitalist, so I see nothing wrong with what he did whatsoever, but... This is a, <laughs> this is a um, critique. This is an anti-capitalist film, I think, pretty much. Do you think so? I would, Yeah, I mean, uh, well, a lot of people think it's about sort of anti-capitalist, um, corporate greed sort of thing, because Daniel Plainview is greedy. He He, he destroys pretty much you know his personal life and other people's lives just so he can get more oil um so that's the general consensus that that i've seen sort of online that it's sort of against capitalism yeah i think that was obviously you know there are a lot of themes in this film i think that was one of them obviously capitalism you know the chasing of the american dream you know sort of pitting christianity against capitalism even when i was writing my notes when i was watching it like I wrote this, but I'm like, mm, it's not particularly true. But like, Christianity. I mean, it's, we're talking America, right? So America has always been incredibly Christian, especially for a Western country. Um, you know, it, it was sort of looking at perhaps the waning influence of Christianity at that time in comparison to Wall Street and the oil boom. And you know, now God isn't worshipped; it's oil that's worshipped and money. And that Daniel, you know, he's preaching as much as Eli is. He's just preaching prosperity instead of piety, but he's still preaching. You know what it reminded me of as well is um um Giant. 
Because it's the, you know, it's the oil boom and these, you know, um, country people's lives changing due to all these rich dudes, you know, buying, basically just buying their land for oil. I have that written. That's the next thing I was going to say. It was in my notes. It reminded me of Giant. And, and you know, Daniel Plainview is sort of like a jet wink in a sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I never thought he was evil. Like, I've seen some evil characters in film. I, I, I never thought he was evil or really even bad. But, I mean, obviously, I can see how people would have that perception. I mean, I personally think evil was a stretch too far, but I can see how people would perceive him negatively. But Yeah, yeah. Your definition, you know, you, you can view him as evil or you can view him as just an opportunistic, you know, guy who's doing what he can to get rich and, you know, make... But obviously, at the end, I think that because pe- the people think it's sort of a cautionary tale because of how he ends up, I guess, sort of loses his son, loses his relationships. He's alone, a drunk in this huge mansion. Um, you know, he's got he's got rich and he's got what he wants, but he's lost, you know, his son. Or although he's an adopted son, he's he's sort of lost him. Um, all he's thinking about is competition. You know, he. He doesn't want his son to leave because he says you're going to be my competition. Um, so that's that's all he's thinking about is just money and competition. He does have some like compassion. Like he obviously um, he picks up the baby at the start. He becomes the son. Um, although I guess he kind of has to because you know, well he doesn't have to. Right? I guess you he know. could have given it away yeah. or he doesn't have to. Yeah. Um, and there was another. You know the young daughter. Of yes. The, um, father. He he notices. Well, he's told by his son that she's being beaten for not praying. Is it not praying or not? Going yes, to yes, yeah, um, yeah. And he sort of basically threatens the father, basically, and says, "Don't you know? Don't beat your daughter." So, I don't think that he doesn't. I don't think he lacks compassion. I just think no. He's just his, he's just driven he's just by driven, money and yeah, competitiveness yeah, and greed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the town the town seems to prosper well enough, right? Um, so, you know, he doesn't do anything that sort of really affects the town. Although I, I'm going to watch that. I, I haven't seen that video, but I want to watch it just to get the take on it. Um, cause yeah, I, is... I feel like I would watch it, but I just get too mad watching it. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, I can report. I can report. Yeah, yeah, you watch it and you tell me what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there was another scene, that, you know, when the oil uh, mm. well sort of blows up and you know, yeah. that scene. Um, so basically, Daniel's son is right there. Uh, the sort of well blows up, and um, his ears go, um, and he gets rescued by one of the workers and taken to this sort of shack. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, and um, Daniel goes immediately to his son and says, Are "You okay? Are you okay?" Blah blah blah. But then the son is begging him to not leave him and not go, and so, so yeah, n- not leave him and go to the oil to try and save the oil. But Daniel just can't—he just can't resist—and um, and leaves the sun and goes to goes to try and save the well, um, and doesn't seem to really give a shit after that. Uh, or he does, but as in in that moment, he just forgets that his son has just been injured in an explosion. <laughs> yeah, there's um, even—I can't remember the exact line—but when I was reading different analyses of the film last night, was you know, there's a scene, and it was that, that scene. And I think he says to his his offside of Fletcher Hamilton, um, he says to him something like, "Oh, you know, is HW okay?" Just like offhandedly, and the guy says like, "No," and he's just like, "Oh, okay, whatever," you know, like he's just concerned about the oil. Yeah. And it's sort of like that through, you know, he he sends his son away. Then presumably, 
well, I know because of the whole fire situation in the house, but, you know, he clearly sees his son as a sort of obstacle um, to him in gaining, you know, more money and power and whatever. Um, but yeah, I think that sort of relationship was really interesting. I, that was my sort of favourite dynamic of the film, I think. So the only other points I had was looking at, I get it's an ep- and it's like a giant, right? I get it's an epic told across many years. I mean, we span close to 30 years, I think, if my maths is correct. You know, so I, I know it has to be long, um, but I do think it was too long. Because, um, like you said, it, it was, you know, it was like, it's two, it's 158 minutes. So we're talking two hours, 40 minutes. It's Yeah, I think it could have been trimmed a bit. Like I found the whole, like, half-brother plot. I guess it was kind of important to the story, but... I didn't care much for that sort of subplot, um, so it probably could have been trimmed a bit. But yeah, I I was never sort of properly bored, but there were times when I was like, oh, can this sort of can this get a move on sort of thing? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, there was no dialogue for the first fifteen minutes. Yeah. Well, you know, which which I I don't think I mean off the top of my head, I can't think of another film that's done that. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's out there, of course, but I can't think of one. It's done it. But thinking about it, I guess that's a testament to how well it was mm, shot. Exactly. Sort of, um, the sound design, because I didn't even note it. Like, I was just concentrating on his character and what he's doing. Didn't really notice that. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, what's interesting too is I read in um, one of his um, analysis that I was reading was, you know, there really, there's no profanity that, that I can recall at all. There's no sort of sexual, you know, scenes. Which is rare, right? You think of films nowadays, right? You you pretty much guaranteed no matter what sort of film it is, you'll have you know some some swearing and probably a sex scene or two, or even a romantic something, right? There's none of that in there, which was was interesting. I think I think it for me it sort of you know just like Daniel has this singular focus, I think Paul Thomas Anderson as a director had this singular focus of I'm telling this man's story, and we're not including a, a girlfriend, we're not including. You better give me this F and oil well, you know. Well, I think all it needed, I think the son, you know, that relationship was the sort of heart of the story. So it didn't need any romance or sort of fluff, you know. I think that was the central, you know, piece. And the only other thing I had, which is, I guess, more of a question. So as I said, we see this Paul Sunday come to Daniel and, and Fletcher and say, oh, my family's got this ranch, you should draw it. We never see him again. The only other person we see is Eli. Now, I picked up on when they, um, when Daniel and HW go to the ranch for the first time, they, they come across the ranch. The father says, and I can't remember the exact quote, and I, I probably should look this up, but I'm pretty sure I didn't mishear it. But he said something about family of five, right, which would include him, the, the wife, mother, the two little girls, and the boy. Now, he could have said family five because maybe Paul was not living there at the time. Maybe he'd moved out or whatever. I mean, he, you know, he was, he was, he made his way to wherever Daniel was. So maybe he just moved out and was drifting around or whatever. But no one ever seems to acknowledge or know Paul. Now, that could just be as, as simple as I said. Maybe he just moved away from the town and that's why. But it's, I, when I was watching it, I was like, is this some weird, like, psychological shit? Like, is he, like, 
is this guy Paul and Eli together? Like, is he, you know, like split personalities? Like, you know, I, I get they're supposed to be twins, but it was strange to me that no one spoke of or sort of acknowledged this Paul existing. Did did he, no Eli? Um, I swear, Eli. Um, when they were having dinner with the father, talked about Paul. Um, selling the land, or yeah, Eli was talking to his father about Paul telling Daniel about the land. So Eli acknowledged that he existed. So he does, yeah. Paul, Paul exists. I just assumed he was um, living elsewhere, or you know, I didn't, I didn't really think about that properly. I just assumed he was living elsewhere. Maybe I just thought it was like some weird David Lynch shit. Like, oh, he's Paul and Eli, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, you, no, yeah, they, they are separate characters. And so maybe, maybe they, maybe there should have been a line in there about Paul maybe studying in a in a city or elsewhere. But yeah, they were separate. Um, good film. Well, we got off to a good start. We both <laughs> both liked the first film, so it's only downhill from here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to your pick. Mm-hmm. So my pick is um, Licorice Pizza, also also from PTA, um, released last year. So very new, which is a, um, a sort of uh, I don't often pick. Also, you know, <laughs> I like I like you know films of all eras, but I don't often pick modern films for the podcast. But here we are. Um, so yeah. Uh, I, I completely forgot to write like a synopsis, so I've stolen the IMDb one. Um, yeah, good idea. Little, yeah, because <laughs> it's another, it's another. I mean, I feel like all Paul Thomas Anderson makes is long films. So I was going to say it's another long, convoluted yeah. film. So, so. <laughs> okay, so it basically uh, we um, it starts in a school um, in the San Fernando Valley in California in 1973. Um, okay, I, I, this is going to sound a bit monotonous because I'm just reading from IMDb, but okay, so. Um, Disarmed by his fearless confidence and surprising maturity, bored 25-year-old photographer's assistant Alana Kane, who's played by Alana Haim from a music band, um, she, she basically accepts to go out for a drink with this 15-year-old child actor, Gary Valentine, who is her unexpected admirer. Um, as one thing leads to another, the platonic soulmates embark on ambitious business ventures trying to find their feet and purpose in a crazy world. That's pretty much the um, synopsis. And we view that the film basically then follows their relationship as they get other partners. Um, they sort of go into business together with, you know, some waterbeds and all sorts of things. Um, they try to make each other jealous. They do different things with their lives, etc., etc. Um, then in the end, it's sort of a thing where they realise that they love each other and um, Alana professes her love to him. And it ends. That's a very simple, you know, it, it's a two hour 15 film. So it's a long film. But that's pretty much the sort of plot. I, you know, I'm not going to go into details. But um, so how, how do you want to tackle this? Do you want to, <laughs> shall I, shall I, do you want to go first or shall I go first? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'm going to eviscerate it, okay, as you well, know. So maybe you go first. Okay, well, and, I'll, uh, I'll go first. And then you can just yeah. rant at me about it. So, okay. so, Sounds good. so I gave it, um, <laughs> I had it at two stars originally, and then I've upped it to two and a half, but I'm sort of teetering. It's sort of teetering between two and two and a half, basically. Um, 
So I, I wasn't overall a, f- a fan, but I found things to appreciate. So um, being PTA, I thought it was shot very well. I thought it was quite pleasing to the eye. Obviously not as well shot as something like The Master or um, There Will Be Blood, but I thought it was, you know, I, I thought it was nice to look at. Um, I liked some of the music choices and that sort of links into the, the sort of vibe, which I liked in the first sort of half an hour, hour. It was pretty fun, you know, 70s LA, San Fernando Valley. Um, it's clearly a love letter from PTA to his childhood. It's like a very personal film. Um, and I thought, although I've never been or, you know, obviously didn't grow up in the 70s, I thought he captured that feeling well and the passion from him came across quite well. Um, I thought the pacing was okay for the most part, even if the plot was quite aimless. I I was never sort of really, really bored. Um, again, I sort of clocked out my attention a couple of times, but not really. Um, the performances were fine. I thought the kind of overrated, you know, Alana Haim was getting sort of Oscar buzz, which I don't quite get, but I, but I, I, I know you hated them, but I thought, I, I thought they did, you know, pretty good jobs with what they were given, Um, but I don't understand the sort of super buzz that they got. Well, it's Paul um, Thomas Anderson, so of course. It's yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I, I thought actually the Bradley Cooper cameo, who was, he was playing a sort of, um a, a real life producer from the seventies. I can't remember his name now. Um, but I thought he was, I thought he was really good and he was funny and probably the most entertaining part of the film. <laughs> um, he, he was clearly just having fun with the role, um, and it was probably yeah the most enjoyable part. So that was what I appreciated. Um, in terms of what I didn't appreciate, I don't know. I I just finished it and I just felt kind of empty. Like I didn't, I didn't have a like I didn't have a bad time watching it necessarily, but I just felt like I was missing. Something like I I like certain films. I like some films where it's aimless and you no know, sort of just vibes. Like um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is similar in the sense that it's sort of like a bit aimless and just sort of you go along with the vibe. But I found this quite like meandering, and I didn't. I wasn't really. I wasn't invested really in the relationship between Hoffman and I can't. Oh, Gary and um, Alana. Um, I didn't really feel like the romance between them. Um. The, the um the supporting characters weren't interesting at all I didn't really care for their families um I found it hard to empathize with many of the characters and the whole like politician subplot with um Benny Safdie playing this politician I didn't it just didn't interest me I did just did not give a shit about what was happening um and yeah by the end I thought you know although I'm kind of having an all right time and I'm getting along with the vibes of the whole la thing, um, I just don't really care about these people. Like, I just don't care. Um, and I guess the elephant in the room, which a lot of reviewers seem to notice, is the fact that um, the character is, in the film is 25 and Gary Valentine is 15. Now, yeah, that that is that's a paedophilic relationship, right? So I understand that in the 70s, age gaps were common, but I did feel a bit uncomfortable, you know, with that fact. And maybe there's more justification for it. Um, I saw someone saying that it's something about like, um, it's like a coming of age story for Gary. And um, it's all about sort of, he's mature for his age. She's not mature for her age. They sort of need to sort of teach each other how to live or something. I don't know. I need some more reading on it. 
but I thought I don't think it needed that age gap. Maybe I missed a point of the film. Um, but yeah, and then the final thing is the ending just felt a little too good to be true and a little bit odd. Like she just they sort of um run to each other after realizing that they're with each other, and um she just says I love you, and then it ends. Um, and yeah, I I don't know. I didn't really like that ending and the fact that she's saying i love you to a 15 year old is kind of creepy um so yeah so as you can see as you can see you probably agree with a lot of the bad um, yes because you, you've touched on a lot of what's in my notes yeah. so. <laughs> and so the good the good is seemingly listening to myself more about the craft again like the sort of um cinematography and sort of music and the vibe but the plot i didn't really care I didn't feel invested in it, so yeah. Do you want to eviscerate it now? <laughs> yes, gladly. Okay. So, look, first thing I'll say is what you just said. The whole premise is weird and creepy. It's like grooming, and it's paedophilia, right? It's this twenty-five-year-old woman hitting on, going on dates with. Well, I, well, he he hits he hits on her. She's re- she's reluctant at first, and she says, "You're fifteen. I'm twenty-five. Yeah, but then she she's like, oh fuck it, I'll just go. You know, I love you. Like the, the, the thing is, at, at some point she even says to her sister, like, "This is I'm hanging out," uh, and this is before she's got romantic feelings. She says, "Is it weird that I'm hanging out with a group of fifteen year olds?" And the sister is like, "Yes." So the fact that it then goes from that to romance is you know, and she, she's she's a twenty five year old getting jealous over a fifteen year old kissing someone. Like, I don't know how often that, definitely not now, but in the 70s, did that happen? You know, I don't know. And the big thing for me is if agendas were reversed, could you imagine the reaction? If this was some 25-year-old guy trying to get with a 15-year-old girl, the internet would lose their shit. Twitter would be on fire. Oh, but because it's a 25-year-old woman and a 15-year-old boy, oh, well, and it's Paul Thomas Anderson, so oh, it's just incredible. Oh, it's the best film of 2021. Oh, it's amazing. It's like, no, it's grooming and pedophilia, but okay, sure, it's PTA, so it gets a pass. I, <laughs> I think that PTA, I saw it Xbox person mentioned this as well. I think PTA had had this experience when it's like a semi autobiographical thing. So I think he had this experience when he was young, when he was fifteen or whatever, of maybe being in love with this older woman, and he sort of translate. He's sort of transcribing that to the screen, translating to the screen. Well, it it, it reminded um, me of um, another film, which and I said if if this is, I, I don't want to say you're wrong, I just haven't read it, but it was semi-autobiographical. But if it is, there's another film, which is also semi-autobiographical and a coming-of-age film, which I also didn't like. Um, I think I gave it... I don't know if I gave it one star or two stars. Maybe I only gave it two stars because it was sort of based on a guy's life, um, which is almost famous. Um, similar thing. Teenage boy in the 70s, living this very wild life. Uh, and that was directed by Cameron Crowe, I believe. Yeah, so and so that one I thought was similarly stupid, but I could forgive it slightly because I don't want to say most. Some of what happens in the film actually happened in his real life. Well, again, I don't know. I don't think this is a you know a sort of life for life thing, but I think PTA was drawing on some of you know experiences of growing up in San Fernando Valley. You know, the the, the kid in Almost Famous, without wanting to get too much into that movie lives you know this very wild 
you know, outrageous life. There's no parental supervision. I mean, that's a bit different because he's on tour with this rock band and different stuff. But you look at Gary Valentine in this film. He's 15, as you said. He's a child actor. He's not a child actor of particular note or renown, but he, he, he's a child actor nonetheless. What I want to know, and I know this may, I know the answer to this may be, oh, just suspend your disbelief, but I do think the question needs to be asked, how can this 15-year-old, who is at school, because that's where he met um, Alana in the first place, how can this 15-year-old be a child actor? He also works in some PR firm. Well, with his mum. But who she's never there, apparently. He was there once, maybe. Um, then he starts selling water beds. Then he starts selling pinball machines. And over time, he's not selling them out of his like basement or something. He's got shop funds. He's got distribution deals. He's operating entire businesses. How the fuck can this child do this? I agree. When when he opened the pinball store, I was like, "How is a fifteen year old opening a pinball? Exactly, store, a whole pinball store and operating it pretty much by himself." Um, so I, I agree. I agree. Exactly. It's like does nobody attends does nobody attend school in this universe, including his brother, who's like meant to be nine, but they don't attend school. He just goes around taking people out to dinner. I mean, who's paying for it? Where are his parents? His mother is seen once, yeah, no, I, maybe. No, I, agree, I mean, no, she, she, did, like, what, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's just stupid um, that anybody that age could could be doing any of those things. I mean, it would be hard enough to believe, you know, one thing, but it's like, oh no, we're gonna we're gonna turn it to eleven, and he's doing ten. She, actually, they, I think, the character of Alana kind of touches on that when they first have dinner because he says. He says like, "Oh, I, I'm an actor. I run a PR firm," and she's like, "Oh, like when do you do your maths homework, sort of thing." So I think PTA was maybe you know aware of this. Um, I I just found it ridiculous that this child was going around doing all these things. I mean, you know, on on the acting point, I mean, just first of all, he didn't look fifteen. His brother didn't look nine. The brother looked about thirteen. How old? How old is Cooper Hoffman? Is he seven? You see, wait, I'll see how old he is. So, oh, so he's nineteen. So when filming was probably seventeen, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he didn't, he didn't. I mean, maybe you know, I, I looked very young at fifteen. So I he, thought, he, 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 he didn't look fifteen to me. He looked like eighteen at the minimum. And then I said his brother yeah. looked and sounded like he was about thirteen. I mean, the kid, you know, the supposedly nine-year-old brother sounds like me now when I'm losing my voice. You know, <laughs> no, no nine-year-old has a voice that deep, just saying. I wasn't impressed with acting at all. I mean, Alana Haim is not an actress. She's a singer, right? She's part of a band, Haim. Um, I don't know if I've heard their music before. Maybe you've heard a song or two of theirs. Um, so I can't attest to her talent as a musician, uh, but she's certainly just judging off this film, which I believe was her first film. She's no actress. Um, I don't think... Cooper Hoffman is any sort of actor. I wasn't impressed with either of them. So he's not he's he's not his father's son. Well, this no. is the only reason he got that role was because of his father. Was because Paul Thomas Anderson loved Philip Seymour Hoffman and he put him in every film. And then he died, and so PTA was probably like, "Oh, well, I'll cast you in this film, Cooper." You know, I I didn't I, I didn't think their acting was good at all. I thought the characters, you know, and the way they played them, it was just cringy. I was just cringing the whole time. I'm like nobody talks like this nobody interacts like this nobody lives these lives like i was just watching it and i'm like this is so inauthentic yeah yeah i mean i yeah again i don't think the acting was sort of world class but i don't think it's as bad as 
I don't think it's as bad as you're saying, but I guess um, I thought it was just okay. Um, I thought Cooper Hoffman was better than Alana Haim. Um, I thought, oh really? I thought he was far worse. Really? I thought he was awful. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I didn't I, like I, him I, at I, all. I, awful. I, I think he captured sort of what PTA the character. Um, you know, this sort of confident, cocky, fifteen-year-old. I thought he captured that kind of okay, well. Um, him, see, him, Eli Sunday. I want to punch in the face, and Gary Valentine. I want to punch in the face even more. Oh no, like, I, I agree. I, oh, I, I agree. I agree with you. Intolerable. In face as well. um, <laughs> if if Paul Thomas Anderson made it. Every film like There Will Be Blood was fantastic, right? Because clearly he can write a script. I, I don't know if he wrote that. I should, probably should check. I just presume he wrote it because he's the director. Um, so let's say for the sake of argument, he wrote There Will Be Blood, um, which I, I think he did because he adapted it from a novel, or sort of adapted it. Um, the writing in this, I thought, was just weak. Um, I wasn't impressed with the script whatsoever. Um, even though it was only, like you said, two hours, 15 dragged for me i thought it was too long you know i know it's not a bad and out comedy it's like a comedy drama sort of thing um i didn't laugh once um i don't know where the humor was supposed to be like oh look at these awkward situations ha 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 like that's not funny to me yeah i didn't i didn't laugh the whole the whole bit with the you know with um the sean penn oh yeah um, cameo with you know i yeah i think that was meant to be funny but I yeah it was just stupid it. um Anyway, like it, it just the film started very abruptly for me. I don't know if you found that, but it started very sort of like abruptly, and there was no like lead in. Like, like, like they didn't really know each other, and she was sort of walking. I didn't even get what she was doing, walking through the crowd, and then the school, and then he starts talking to her, and then like ten seconds later, oh, we're out at dinner, and she's going to New York with him, and I was like, what? Yeah, I think it's just meant to. Well, you know, I think that their relationship progressed. I think there were there were time jumps which weren't sort of um said i i guess like it, that that didn't happen in the space of like a few days i think you know um she she went to she was persuaded to go to dinner with him that night um and then i think the whole new york thing happened weeks later or something i don't know um but i i mean where was where was chris hansen in the 70s that's what we needed we needed him to walk in and be like alana will you take a yeah, seat yeah, yeah. um <laughs> You know, I mean, I think, like you said, you know, it, it meandered for me. It reminded me of Magnolia, which, you know, I also hated and also gave half a star to, um, because it, it was just like I was watching this film and I was like, nothing of any great significance is happening. The plot is just meandering along. You know, it's this bunch of interconnected characters, but for me, there was nothing to sort of maintain the interest. Although, it, I mean, it has it has more of a plot than True. Magnolia, because yes. Magnolia, um, like, it has, it has a beginning, you know, it has a natural progression from their relationship to meeting to her professing her love for him. So at least it has, it did, it does have a plot. It just meanders its way along with random situations that, you know, yeah, aren't, aren't really that interesting. Yeah. Which Paul Thomas Anderson seems to love. And there's only two other points I have. So obviously it is a coming of age film, even though I might not think it's a good one. It is a coming of age film. And I do love coming of age films. You know, Boyhood, as I endlessly talk about, Coda, you know, when I watched the other night, Ridge of 17, that was a very good coming-of-age film. Um, so you can do coming-of-age sort of, you know, snapshots of, of people in time, but there has to be something sort of driving the plot forward other than, like, all oh, this weird pseudo-romantic relationship, you know, and I think for me there has to be, like, a clear focus. Like, I think it's, like, just jumped around. Like I said, there was, there was Gary, and then there was Alana, and then there was the politician, and then there was the actor, and then there was the waterbeds and the, the 
it's like god it's just like can you stay with it's, it's like he's hyperactive like can you just stay with one thing for like five minutes like i think if if the characters were more age appropriate and it focused more actually on them you know on their relationship for the whole story it probably would have been better you know what i mean like but then i guess the you know i i I disagree with the age thing, but there, I, I, I want to do more analysis because there must have been a reason the PTA, you know. Maybe he's just a, a weird fucker. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of weird because, fuckers in in the but, film industry. I know, but, <laughs> but, 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 then, but then it's at an average of 3.7, and there are many low reviews. So, a ton, thousands of people. Because it's Paul Thomas Anderson and it's Letterboxd, and they worship no, but, him. No, but, like, he, you know, I he know, could put but, out, he, he could put out that film, that film, Paint Drying or whatever it's called. You know, he could put that out, and people on Letterboxd would be like, "Oh my god, he's an artistic genius." You know, I don't, th- I don't think it's just that because I don't think I don't know how many views out of Letterboxd. I there there will not be all of those people who are giving it four four and a half five stars just because it's PTA. They're, they're I, I I I know. I think they would. I think they no, would. I I disagree that all of them are. I think there are people. There are people who genuinely like this film. Um, and that's you know. Oh sure, like, yeah. But. But they're not. But I'm saying that there are people who don't have a problem with the age gap. That there aren't all those people aren't sitting there going, "It's pedophilic, but it's fine because it's PTA." I don't believe that. People. No, but I think there are people who are willing to overlook it because it is PTA. Is my point. Some, some, yeah, some, some. I don't think all. So I'd be interested to hear. I'd be interested to hear the thoughts of the people who like the film, not just because it's. Paul Thomas, that's not, there may be some people who haven't seen who haven't seen another PTA film and like this. This was their first time viewing and didn't have a problem with the age gap. I'm curious to hear what their analysis is of is of uh, I can't speak is of why the age gap was yeah. relevant. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, yeah, yeah I I just yeah. I'm very as much as I love Letterboxd, I I very much have a problem with Letterboxd because I think a lot of people on there worship. Uh, certain directors and i'm not gonna list all of them because it's too long but there's a certain group of directors say maybe i don't know 20 30 directors say and everyone in letterbox worships them and i think there is a lot of people who will see a director's name attached to something and instantly be like oh four four and a half five stars and or like you said maybe people who haven't seen a paul tom sanders film before haven't seen a I mean, I, I, I'll try and throw out not overrated directors, but you know names that you know Quentin Tarantino or David Lynch or you know people like that. And I'm not saying they don't have good films, but like they, they, they'll see a name, they'll give it a really high rating. Or what I think a lot of what happens, which is a cynical view, but it, it is honestly what I believe. I think a lot of people see a film has a high rating, and they want to be part of a crowd. They don't want to be the, you know, they don't want to be me. They don't want to be the contrarian who's like, oh, that film is is ranked the seventh highest on Letterboxd. I'm going to give it half a star. They want to fit in, so they give it a high rating because they see everyone else is giving it a high rating and and the rating gets bumped up and up and up. Let's say that might be a cynical view, but I, I think a lot of people on Letterboxd are like that. I think a lot of them rate things based on and we're all guilty of that at times i know for me you know there's times you know if i'm teetering between two ratings i'll go and look at what it's rated and think oh okay maybe i should bump up you know but but i i've never i think a lot of people on letterboxd who give highly rated films high ratings not because they enjoy them that much but because they feel like 
they have to and 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 it's this cinephile community and you know oh if if i don't give this film a a high rating do i get film you know i think that exists i personally just don't think it exists to the to the extent that you do um i trust that people have more intellectual independence and authority than doing that um there will be blood it's it's not rated 4.4 because there's this huge hive mind and every single person watching it is going, oh, this is PTA. I'm going to rate it five stars. I think it's rated 4.4 because it's a genuinely great film. So yes, Fair. I think there are people There are people who will be on contrarian on purpose as well and rate things against the grain because they just want to be contrarian. And there are people who will rate just because they... So I think there are people like that. I think we differ on... Um, how how on, on the extent of it, but anyway, you know that that's a whole debate. That's a lot. So yeah, we can we can we can move on from that. That's a longer conversation, and yeah. <laughs> now, before we move on to our final film, actually, there was something I meant to ask you about Licorice Pizza, and you asked me something similar when we were discussing Breakfast at Tiffany's, and so I'm going to ask you now and get your opinion, and then I will offer my opinion, of course, as I have a tendency to do. What did you think of the scenes with the Japanese women? What were your thoughts? I wasn't too bothered by the Japanese scenes that people go on about. Yes, it's kind of racist, but it didn't affect the film as a whole for me. So I think I think it's weird that PTA included them. Like, I don't think it was necessary. Um, I wasn't sitting there going, oh, I'm offended. Um, I, you know, I can't speak for any Asian Japanese people that you know watch it and think what they think of it i don't know i like if that was commonplace i'm sure that was commonplace in the 70s but like why why was he mimicking a japanese accent like does that happen like i have never seen that before in my life like yeah what like why was it necessary so yeah that's you know it, it didn't affect the film really but i was like why yeah, so for context for our listeners, if anybody who has, hasn't seen the film, um, there's a, a guy who owns some business there, and he, he I guess he owns a Japanese restaurant, I think. Um, and he he has two different Japanese wives at points in the film. Someone will be talking to him about something, and he will turn to his wife, who is Japanese, and uh, I'm not going to do it, but speaks in this you know uh, stereotypical you know you, you think of how people you know would would do a, a, an asian accent for instance you know very over the top you can go and look it on youtube if you want said i'm not going to do it but you know speaks in you know you know it, it speaks in his wife to this you know over the top you know japanese accent so, so sort of character well it's like yeah it's like yeah caricature yeah sort of asian asian accent or, you know that, that people yeah. do. Yeah, I I would say YouTube. Yeah, I, no, I'm no, not gonna no, do no. it because it'll. I'm I'm not interested no. in doing it. It'll just get yeah, me in more yeah. trouble. Um, but yeah, I mean that was you know something like Breakfast at Tiffany's with with the uh, Mickey Rooney. Is it Mickey Rooney? Yeah, yeah. Mickey I always Rooney, get confused yeah. between Mickey Rooney, and Mickey Rourke. I'm always wanna you know. <laughs> um, with that scene, you know, that could be forgiven, even though I still think it's racist and offensive. Because of well, actually, no. I think when we discussed, it, I need to go back and listen to what we said. But I, I think when we discussed it, it was more like, yeah, it was like over time. It's like, wow, but it's, okay, it's the sixties, whatever. And I get this was supposed to be said in the seventies, 
But even, and I, you know, like you, I haven't lived in the 70s, none of us have on this podcast. Even, you know, for the 70s, I think that would be racist. Um, and, and I was looking at it, and like you said, it was, to me, it was gratuitously racist because I was like, like you said, it didn't need to be in there. It didn't add anything to the film. It just seemed like he was doing it, I mean, to troll in a way, to be like, whoa, <laughs> look at this guy speaking in a, you know, weird way to his wife. Like, it's like, never yeah. traces. Like, but like, was there a joke? Like, was that the joke? I don't know. I don't well, know that's what I mean. Was... That's what the thing is, I say about humor. Like, I think that was supposed to be some of the humor. And yeah. I'm like, that's not funny. I don't like, know. Again, maybe someone's written about why they were included or PTA has said something. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, but... for me, I was surprised. I mean, I was, you know, and I, I don't get like this at all because I'm, you know, I'm very much like, oh, it's, you know, just a film. Oh, it's off its time. Oh, who cares, you know. But I was, I don't know if I'd say offended because that's a strong word, but I was certainly. Oh, yeah, same. Like, I wasn't, I, yeah. I, I would say, like, perturbed yeah. by it. Yeah. Or, how do you say that yeah. word? I was very much, like, off-putting, you know, like, what the fuck is this doing in here? Because for me, said, even if you were trying to represent the 70s, right, I was surprised something like that would get made in 2021. But even if you're trying to be over in the 70s, it's 2021. Like, that shit doesn't fly anymore, you know? Like, and I don't know. I mean, it's bad enough, Said, Yeah, I know. It's I like know. he's asking for controversy. It's bad enough the age gap. Then he's like, oh, we're going to put these needlessly racist things in there too. Please cancel me. Like, <laughs> all right. So now let's move on to our final film, uh, which is Christian's Pick. Uh, so this is The Master from 2012. Stars, you know, I can't say his name. What's his name? Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just going to call him Joe and Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Amy Adams. Again, I'll give a short synopsis. I'm not going to go into specific detail with this confusing movie. Um, Phoenix plays someone called Freddie Quayle who was in the Navy um, and he gets out and during World War II, um, and he sort of, you know, can't adjust, and he's just sort of weird, violent guy, um, sort of like in Joker. Maybe this was Joker before Joker. <laughs> um, uh, this is Arthur Fleck if he was in World War II. Um, so, yeah, he sort of he comes out, he's sort of aimless, he's, you know, violent, he's, you know, strange, um, and he ends up randomly um, on this boat um he just jumps on this boat uh, which happens to be uh being used by uh someone called lancaster dodd um we don't learn that's his name until later in the film up until you know the majority of the film he's just called the master so he he's created this sort of religious you know philosophical movement called the cause and he has all these followers and um and him and Freddie get to know each other and you know yeah bond and dodge sort of takes him under his wing as sort of like his protege um and it sort of follows them you know they travel around the country um you know spreading their teachings i guess probably trying to solicit money at the same time and you know the film sort of follows their relationship and you know what's happening with the cause and you know, Dodd trying to help Freddy. You know, the film ends with, uh, you know, Freddy leaves. Um, he just sort of rides off on a motorcycle into the desert. Um, and he goes back to, to visit 
this girl who he sort of left behind years ago and she's uh she's often married someone else and moved states um and after that uh dodd calls freddie and says oh i'm in i'm in england you know the course is here now come and visit me um which he does they realize that you know he he can't come back to the cause he's sort of out of it and you know he can't come back in he's basically told like an ultimatum like either you join and you're devoted forever or you leave now and you never come back and he opts to leave um and end of film so it's a very said short brief synopsis we can get into the specific details it's very long well not very long but it's a very confusing film um so we're pretty much on the same page of this in terms of rating. We both gave it two stars. Did you want to go first and share your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of um. Well, I I enjoyed Dead Woo Blood a lot more because its plot was actually you know good and well it was easier to follow. But I guess it's similar in the sense that I loved the sort of um the cinematography again. All the shots were really crisp looking. The composition was great. Uh, colors were great. Um, the mise en scène, the set design sort of really captured the feel of the 1950s. Um, the acting, I thought, was excellent, mostly from Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's who's always great. Um, Phoenix was good, but he didn't capture my attention as much. And it's sort of, I don't know, like, I, I thought, obviously, he's always good. So he, you know, I, I'm not saying it was bad. I just enjoyed watching Philip Seymour Hoffman more. Um, and actually, a lot of Phoenix's sort of mannerisms reminded me of the Joker, um, sort of the, with a way maybe he copied a bit from his performance here. Yeah. Um. I I I think I think yeah. He did. Because yeah, I, I thought the same. I I said I felt like I was watching. Yeah, you said yeah. The, the, him yeah. playing Joker yeah, yeah. before he played exactly, Joker. Yeah. So. Um, the pacing I thought for the most part was okay, but I did get bored at times. You know, my concentration wanes. Um, was checking my phone, which is a bit of a red flag for me. It just shows I'm not really interested in what's happening. <laughs> um. In terms of the bad, it's kind of uh, it's difficult because like it's one of those films where objectively I know it's not really a bad film, um, but I but because of its like technical achievements and underlying themes which I read about and it sort of then it sort of clicked a bit more for me. But I rate it two stars because like uh, li- looking at the themes and sort of understanding it a bit more, I can maybe bump it up to like a three, three and a half. But when I was watching it. I just wasn't invested that much. I just didn't really understand some of what was happening. Um, so my enjoyment was therefore quite low. So it's, again, that debate of do you rank based on, you know, objectively how good it is, or do you rank it based on your enjoyment? And I tend to go more for enjoyment, so that's why I rated it two stars. But I can see why it's at a four. I, I, I can see, I can understand why people like it so much. It just didn't really work for me. I didn't really have like an emotional connection to it, to it or to um, Freddie, the um, played by Phoenix. And like, I didn't, I didn't feel connected to him or his journey that much. So by extension, I didn't really care about the plot. So um, yeah, and there are some things which I which I can go into after I found on um, on an article. Um, but yeah, do you want to say what what you thought? Yeah, so look, again, I agree with everything you said pretty much. Um, look, again, technically, and this was a sort of hard film for me to rate. It's basically like what you just said, right? Technically, I was like, oh, three, three and a half stars. 
like because I I think you know the the camera work was great you know the lighting I don't know if I noticed lighting in films but when I do I'm like damn that's good you know the lighting was good yeah, yeah. the light you know and just the camera work you know these long wide takes that he loves um you know that was all very good I thought the music was good both in terms of you know the, the score which as, as I said was Johnny Greenwood again um and the songs they included um look I thought the acting was good across the board um I'm slowly well, not slowly but I'm I'm very much becoming a fan of of Joaquin Phoenix obviously you know I loved him in Joker loved him in Come On Come On which I, I said to you the other day I went and bought uh, because I just I've sort of fell in love with that film kind of and I, I thought he was you know really good in this um Philip Seymour Hoffman as well I mean I don't you know Philip Seymour Hoffman is held up there probably I would say in that same realm as like Daniel Day-Lewis you know as like this really fantastic actor yeah, I haven't yeah. seen enough Probably of his right stuff to hold him up there myself you know to that level um I mean he was in Magnolia you know which I didn't like um he was in Almost Famous which I didn't like but I mean he wasn't really part of that he now he I do really like this film from what I can remember but I need to rewatch it um uh, before the devil knows you're dead from what i remember of him in that he was very good but i need to rewatch it because i haven't seen it in forever and, and i've heard he was he was you know good in a lot of other things you know capote he won the academy award for best yeah. actor mission, mission impossible three yes i love that um you know he received three nominations for best supporting actor one of them was for the master one of them was for charlie wilson's war another was for doubt so you know he's he's among cinephiles and people who um you know love film he certainly held up there very highly and i think he was good in this i would i would agree with you sort of in you know i think well no i was uh, i was about to say something and i just I, my brain switched on for a second i'm like oh it's not particularly fair to say that i was gonna say lancaster dodd is a more complex character than freddie quill but then i i've caught myself and i'm like no actually freddie quill is just as complex as lancaster died yeah, they're both pretty complex, and actually one yeah. of the things i had written down in my notes of there'll be blood um which i waited to say until now was when i was reading you know because all of these films i went and read a lot of analysis for because i you know i mean there'll be blood like you i got um this i didn't get um so i went and read you know a lot of analysis on it and one of the things I read was the the characters, you know, so Daniel Plainview and Eli Sunday and then Freddie Quell and Lancaster Dodd, you know, when you look at it at face value, both of those films feature two men who seem very different, but are actually very similar. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, because Paul Thomas Anderson had a lot of influences for The Master, one of them was unused scenes from early drafts of There'll Be Blood. So you can sort of see that similarity in that sort of characters and like pseudo rivalry. Um, I mean, some of the other influences he had, I mean, it's very like varied and interesting. So um, he used elements from the life stories of John Steinbeck, uh, who I'm a big fan of, and L. Ron Hubbard, which is the obvious one, you know, the founder of Scientology, that's sort of the most the comparison that's drawn the most, which I, which, and I knew that going in, and it was sort of hard for me to see Lancaster Dodd as anyone but Elrond Hubbard the whole time. I'm like, it's Elrond Hubbard, and this is Scientology. And then he also used uh, the novel V by Thomas Pynchon, um, as well as stories um, that Jason Robards told him on the set of Magnolia um, about his drinking days in U.S. Navy. So it was a bunch of whole different influences um, that was that was used. You know, for me, the problem with the film... I just didn't get it in in the sense of 
I got, you know, and, and I'm sure you'll talk about this in, in a second, about, you know, the different themes, you know, Scientology, you know, being the most obvious reading of what it is, you know, but about cults more generally, you know, about people who are so different, but they're so alike and sort of, a, you know, what happens, you know, with people like that, you know, about the search for belonging and like feeling, you know, like you want a family and, you know, desiring to feel wanted, you know, about trauma and how you overcome that. There's a lot of different themes, you know, as I said, and, and I know you'll touch on this, but it just, it, it seemed like a classic Paul Thomas Hansen film in that there's so many themes and there's so much going on that there's not a clear message. And maybe there wasn't designed to be a clear message. Maybe it's designed to be six or 10 different messages at once. But for me, I just, I, you know, I came out of it and I was like, okay, technically that was really good. But like, what is he? Because I know he's trying to communicate something with a plot. And I said, I can sort of get his he's communicating all these different themes and ideas and messages and, and different things he's talking about. But it was all just a bit like muddled and like, you know, there were so many different influences and so much of what he was trying to get across. And I was just like, it, it wasn't super coherent to me. Yeah, I mean, I... I pretty much agree with that. I mean, the the article I found was talking about like six or seven different themes that were sort of running through the film. The main ones were um, search for a family and a stability. So Freddy's after warmth, contact, comfort. Um, then the politics of cult. Um, again, that's sort of the main one. Um, and then like post-war rumblings. So like, um, so like Freddie. Yeah, I actually know the article you're talking about because I, I stole most I of my things from the same show. one. Yeah, so I, I, I won't <laughs> yeah. go through all the notes, but I, I made yeah. it, didn't make. I, I basically copied the notes. Um, but yeah, I agree. I don't know. I think it just felt a little bit unfocused in that, like, there were so many different things that he was maybe trying to say. I just got a bit overwhelmed, maybe, with it, and I didn't really feel that. And say, like, it was interesting. Yeah. Like it was an interesting film yeah. and an interesting premise and. Yeah you know, certainly at that time, from what I've read at that time in history, you know, things like that happened, you know, people started these new religious movements, they started these cults, you know, they started all these things, because like you said, after the war, people were sort of searching for meaning, and like, you know, and, and that's just the average person, this isn't even the people coming back from war. So yeah, I think, you know, there were interesting things, but like you said, it was just all a bit, all yeah. over the place. It may be something that, like, I'll connect with when I watch it a second time, like knowing all the all the mess, all the themes and all the context and stuff, because that does sometimes happen. Like I've sometimes watched a film and not really got it, and then watch it again, knowing everything about it, it sort of clicks a bit more. That may be the case with this. Yeah, that's basically it. Technically great, but apart from that, I couldn't really give it past a two. But I mean, I I know Christian is probably gonna think now. Because he gave it four and a half, I think. Yeah. Um, Typical letterbox film, bro. I th- yeah, 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 yeah. I, I feel kind of sorry for Christian because I don't think I've been, I think I've given low ratings to a lot of his picks for us. I mean, so if I look back over his picks, so you, you really liked From Dust Till Dawn. We'll oh, give no, him that. of course, yeah. You liked yeah. that one. Um, yeah. Lock, you sort oh, of yeah, indifferent okay, on. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. you certainly liked it a lot. Liked, you liked it a lot more yeah. than I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, um, what else have we got here that he picked that you liked? Perfect Blue, you liked. Oh, yeah, it was okay, just confusing. So maybe, maybe I'm doing him a disservice here. I mean, our tastes, you know, are, are pretty 
similar for the most part. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you, you and him agree yeah. on 95% of stuff. Like, it's just the 5% where you're like, oh. But I mean, like, it, it, but man, if you look at the films he's picked, I mean, I, you know, if anyone's going to feel sorry for him, it would be, I, I hate his, you know, for the most part. But he has picked, you know, like, I, you know, yeah, obviously from Dust yeah, Dawn, true. I hated. Yeah. That's um, true. Locke, I yeah. hated. Um, but in saying that, you know, Black Death, I liked. Paths of Glory, loved. Fantastic pick. Armadillo, loved. Perfect Blue, loved. Um, Network, fantastic. So yeah, but it's 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 one of those things I think where, and we've talked about it before. You know, the negatives always stand out more than the positives. You know, it's always a thing of where like if we if we dislike or dare I say hate a film that one of us has picked for each other, you know, it stands out more than like oh yeah, I remember that film you picked and I liked it. Whereas whereas when it's like we just like it, it's like oh, you hated my pick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that wraps up episode thirty-two. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you could give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'll see you next week.